Welcome to episode 100 of Coming Up Next with Alistair Marks. Whether you're a first-time listener or you've heard me ramble for the last 99 weeks, thank you for tuning in. Uh, And if you are uh, tuning in for the first time, you can find the whole back catalogue for free of Coming Up Next at comingupnext.com.au. I'll tell you what, I couldn't be more excited about sharing my interview with Upper Middle Bogan creators Robin Butler and Wayne Hope. But before we get to that, whether you're streaming this, whether you've downloaded it, you can help me keep the show free by hitting subscribe in your iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean application. This free content has been coming your way for almost two years now every week. And you can help keep it that way by leaving a five-star rating and a top-notch review for the podcast. It really helps in more ways than things like that probably should. So, you know, if you support Cun Podcast, take a moment, do me a favor, and let's keep the momentum of the show rolling for another 100 episodes. Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. Bosspods.com. Podcast like a boss. Congratulations on um, on the, the Logie win from uh, last Sunday, was it now? Yes. It's very um, very exciting for you guys. Did you did, When you kind of set out to make a show like Little Lunch, do you kind of approach it with the idea that it might be something that turns into a Logie uh, winning show, show or, is, or is your kind of, uh, mm. I suppose, ambition more, uh, more catered? I think that we stopped thinking about the awards at the end of making something about 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, when, which is when we first started making something. That you, the, the dreams you have... Uh, holding a microphone in front of a mirror when you're young, I think quickly evaporate when you when you actually start the cold heart reality of making things and having audiences watching them. And it's 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 a fool's game, I think, to think about the praise at the end of it. And that's true. It's a sign of youth, isn't it? It's what mm. you what you practice first as a child. Is I'll start with the acceptance speech, <laughs> that's right. and then slowly work my way towards content, and it takes about twenty-five years. Well, and then as you as you start to do more and more, you realise that the joy. Actually, Alistair, we were just saying this before before we started. The joy is in making the thing, and it's kind of a shame that you have to go to the end point when people start to to watch it. Well, that's probably a little cynical. Yeah. Uh, it's not... It, it's the. It's my least favourite part is going to do the media interviews to publicise it. The podcasts? The pod... This, we're not publicising anything. Oh, we're, we're talking about our craft. Ah. This is a very secret and private conversation. Nobody right? hears this, right? No. No, you no. just like listening... This way, I just I just do it to show my mum that I know people <laughs> in in the film industry. <laughs> Hi, mum. Uh, <laughs> she's not your mum. Robin Butler and Wayne Hope are two of the most prolific creators in the film industry. Uh, I'd originally written that as the Australian film industry, but. You know, let's be honest, there aren't many more prolific creators in the rest of the world than these guys. 
from shows like Stories from the Golf, The Librarians, and Very Small Business through to Upper Middle Bogan and Little Lunch, this couple has created some truly iconic Australian television. And I thought to celebrate the centenary of coming up next podcasts, who better to shed light on the business of show than a power couple of comedy who've paved the way for the writer, director, producer, actors out there who just want to make great content. And uh, while I've got your ear, just wanted to say a big thank you one more time. You know, without you tuning in, it's really just me going around having conversations with people and recording them. And I certainly don't get to do that a hundred times and counting with some of the amazing caliber of people that I've been fortunate enough to speak to on this show. So thank you for tuning in and I will endeavor to bring you another hundred weeks of rambles of epic proportions in the chat cave in the ramble room. And for now, I will leave you with this week's episode. Very excited to share with you my interview with Robin Butler and Wayne Hope. You guys have such an amazing kind of output and such a prolific and kind of sustained career. Um, I'd, I'd love to kind of gain an insight about how you do or what your kind of creative process is when you do, when, when you have got the kind of inkling of an idea or the, the foundations of something. Well, we, I imagine it's similar to many others. We, something bubbles around for a while and for one of us and at some point we'll articulate I've got a I've had a thought I've got an idea what about um it can come in any form whether it's a sometimes it's it's a more realized I'm thinking about uh a show that houses these concerns or, or something like that and then it's usually a, a discussion start of a discussion between the two of us um where the other person will in the most part, encourage that or try and flesh it out to go, what could it be? What is it? What form is it? Because we're talking about things in the zeitgeist a lot of the times that occur to us. Um, I think particularly with comedy, you you have a response to things in a that are quite real or dramatic in their core, but we have a kind of comic response to them. And... So you end up thinking, you know, Up Middle Bogan, for example, when the ABC asked us about that show, they asked us to if we'd be interested in making a family comedy. Now, that doesn't really mean very much to us. That's what, what does that mean? So we, we went away and thought about it and Wayne said, well, I'm interested in the public versus private kind of debate. That's, this was, what, like 2010 maybe mm, when yep. that started? And, you know, cut to now where we've got Trump and Brexit and a reality that's very embedded in Mm. us and them. And we were, yeah, okay, Alistair, if that's what you think, we were ahead of the curve. That's right. Okay, we were. Still Um, pushing that line. (laughs) That was the next thing I was going to say. (laughs) But it is is that thing of where we we like to talk about things that we we feel bubbling up um, socially and so we want to kind of you know talk about that in in, in a funny way so it's it, it's it's very embryonic isn't it it is and start. it comes out i mean you know we're, we're with each other a lot we are interested in we're married we are interested in what is concerning each other so the discussions come out of that 
a, a lot of the time. And then it's, um, I think we get a strong sense from each other what we're passionate about and there, and that indicates how deep an idea might be and whether it's got legs and whether it can be something, you know, the depth in which you can talk about it and how soon you can do that is a good indicator in terms of, you know, how excited we are and, and how much we can turn that excitement into, uh, convey that, I guess. Mm. Do you guys remember, I mean, there are so many kind of facets to your creativity. You know, you guys live your shows from the conception through to the performance do you remember the first time, uh, individually, I suppose, that you did uh, create something and then showcase it or, um, or even just perform um, something perhaps in your childhood or, or thereabouts? Look, the, a few come to mind. Look, the first, the first one when you said that is tragically like as a child performing for family. You know, like many performers, they, I think we have a can look back and be kind of embarrassed at how much attention we were trying to get out of a small cluster of people and hog the space. And I remember uh, my family used to go water skiing up on the Murray River. And uh, and I, for some reason, that they, we used, they used to sit on the river and, the, you know, we'd all ski. And there was a kind of tree where we used to sit that reached out over the water and I would climb out on a limb. <laughs> um, <laughs> literal metaphorically uh and then look back to the to my family and my uncles and auntie and cousins and and perform dick emery which was a 70s comic which was quite camp and appalling i think in hindsight if you look back at the material but i would impersonate a comic i think impersonating someone else um just to to get a laugh out of them and i remember that feeling of them just you know looking back and delighting and it's probably worth saying that the family wasn't all smooth sailing. No. So it, there was an element of peacekeeping. That's and right. It's fair to say it was it's a dysfunctional group yeah. on the shore. Uh, and I was metaphorically trying to calm the waters, I think, by, uh, by being stupid. But that's probably, yeah, a, a starting point for me. What about you? Um, look, pro- probably a, a similar thing. I think it was a safe space. I think I was quite uh, I was quite an anxious child without knowing that I was quite an anxious child and somehow performing was quite calming, writing from an early age too and, and performing. And I remember doing, uh, whenever I did anything on stage, I felt calm, bizarrely, mm. nervous and ridiculously... Uh, beside myself and excited but but there was a kind of I knew what I was doing isn't that a strange a a strange um collision of emotion but because I don't think I'm ever as nervous as when I'm going on to perform something but it makes me it's the safest place as well that's I've never really kind of thought about that before but I think in year 11 I did a a production of Godspell at my Catholic school, all girls, and we, it was joyful. And again, the making of it, you know, this six-month pro, you know, um, project that we group devised everything and it was completely joyful. And then the performance was that feeling of, oh my God, this is working and the audience lapping it up and everything just 
being on that wave that you get when you perform yeah. and thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to be doing this. And because we'd written, you know, we'd done it ourselves yeah. too, it felt yeah. so joyful. Yeah, I think that was the first time that I went, this is for me. What do you think the kind of safety of performance is? Uh, what is that? I, I don't think I've ever articulated that before. So I think in it's the element of you control it, I think. I think that you're controlling the performance as much as you can. And it is that collision of anxiety that you turn into comedy or you turn into emotion or you turn into, you channel the anxiety for once you're not being told to be quiet and sit down and listen or be part of a something that you don't quite understand or rules that you don't quite get. It's something actually quite, uh, that you can harness it yourself in a different way. Does that make any sense yeah, to well, you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it does. But I know you, but I don't think people would understand what you no, just said. But I no. know you intimately. There's a white van pulling up right now with men in coats. I think what mm. you said about mm. as, uh, to, to control your, your opportunity to control something, which sounds possibly more manic than it is, it's it, to express yourself is a rare opportunity where you can be, this is truly how I want to express myself. This is my interpretation, whether it's performing or writing creating any art it's a chance to go here's what i think mm. and you own that space by your they're your thoughts it's your imagination that is the one thing that is uniquely yours and when you have the opportunity to do that i think it doesn't feel like anything else because most of life involves interaction with somebody which is complicated and and, and not that not not a single idea so which is why we have can you know we're the luckiest people alive doing what we do you know we write our own ideas and make them all yeah. the time. God, that's so lucky. <laughs> you mentioned that you, uh, Wayne, that your 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 performance was almost in a kind of peacekeeping capacity within your family. Were uh, both of your families supportive of your creative endeavour? Was it something that you kind of decided from an early age that yes, this is something I'm going to pursue, or was it more kind of a, a little secret? No, I was I was pretty involved from from late high school. I was. I was involved and I was already starting to do both performing and, and make things. I had a fantastic drama media teacher that got me involved in making Super 8 films and and so I'd, and I loved, I'd already loved gear, I loved the tech side of it so I was quite, it was no secret in my family to, to my mother um, that I was doing that. However, I did enrol at the end of year 12 because I lived in the suburb, eastern suburbs of, uh, of um, Melbourne, way out in the burbs, and it, it wasn't really it wasn't really in the family or I wasn't in a circle of people that... They were first-generation Yeah, first-generation migrants. Well. And so it wasn't part of our culture. Um, so I just enrolled to go to, I think, finance I was going to do just which was just like looking down the list with the careers teacher and just 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 bemused after a long so awkward funny. pause just going okay I'll, I'm, I'll give that a crack <laughs> as you do I now I feel for anyone who's 17 or something and has got the pressure of an adult going what are you what, what are you thinking about and most of the times you go I'm just thinking about toasted cheese sandwiches that's what I'm that's all I'm thinking about and to, to tick a box on something Anyway, I, I, I did that. However, I got to 
that was the end of year 12 and I got to about January and and uh, through my drama teacher at school at high school he sent me a, a, a thing I was going to say he didn't send me an email he didn't send me anything because it was 1951 um, <laughs> he sent me a telegram and carry a pigeon yeah and uh, telling me about an audition for a theatre company that did theatre for schools um, which was quite popular still they were talking 1987 88 where they used to have theatre companies that would tour and do community shows um, and there were several professional companies still working in Victoria and they were auditioning and I got a 12 month contract to perform just uh, and I remember just going into my mum and her going when does uni start and I went oh yeah I forgot to tell you I'm not going I'm joined a theatre company and there was the, the usual concerns of you know um, would you be alright does that mean you're a homosexual? Um, <laughs> just the usual concerns from someone who wasn't in that. Usual questions. Usual questions. Uh, but over a slow process, I would say, to the point now where um, you know there's an incredible support from from okay. my mum yeah. towards and, and a lot of pride, of course. And mine were incredibly supportive. My mum uh, and my mum was a nurse. My dad was a teacher. We knew no one in this world at all. Uh, but my mum, they were always, they were kind of outliers, um, my parents. And my mother just infused this absolute sense of whatever you do, it has to make you happy. And which was very unusual uh, for the, the time and the place in which we lived. And I... I don't think I would have kept going if I hadn't been um, so enabled with, with, with that. I, I think that there were a couple of years where I just could not get a job to save myself and I would have given up if I hadn't had that support. And I remember once when I, after I'd signed a development deal with a production company for a year and I developed three shows and nothing happened at the end of it and I had <laughs> nothing and no money and no anything... And I felt like such a failure. And my mum, I spoke to her, rang her up and kind of was embarrassed to say that, you know, these things had all fallen through. And she said, well, I heard an interview with Ruth Cracknell on the ABC. And she said that being an actor was uh, being unemployed. And if you can't accept that, well, then you can't be an actor. So I think you either have to accept that or you have to um, move on. And I kind of went oh my God, you're not judging me, that's fine. And from that moment on, I felt this, not to say it was all smooth sailing, but the liberation I felt from having that sense of... Endorsement. Well, endorsement and, and, yeah, being let off the hook. Oh, you don't care. I'm allowed to do this however I want. There's freedom in this from you. And it's, geez, they're potent, your parents, aren't they? What Mm. they think. Mm. Yeah. I think the chorus of my uh, 20s was does this job pay anything? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and understandably, because I think that notion as a parent of can, how, survival, how will you survive? I'll mm. take you to a certain point. How will you do that? And our industry is perplexing to work out how does the payment occur? Um, how long are you going to do favours for people? You know, when is the transition into that firming up to be anything? And conversely, conversely, people have such a disproportionate view of, you know, when actors do work, 
they did, don't they don't realize that they work for six weeks and that might be their only job but then they've got this image of oh they've made it they must be super rich and yeah it's a very hard job to understand the how, how the the cash flow happens yeah and the kind of that kind of duality duality is that the right word um kind of polarity i suppose actually is a better word of existence between that really big high of having the job and then the kind of come down or the reality in an industry like the Australian industry of maybe having to go and work in a bar when you don't have that's a job. Right. Yeah. That's um, right. It's so hard. When we were at the Logies the other night and we were with um, Michaela Bannis and Annie Maynard from um, Upper Middle Bogan, and I'm saying this because they were saying it to press when press were asking them, mm. what, are you, what are you doing now? They're both going, I'm, un- I'm unemployed. They're there representing our show at the Logies, the Night of Nights. They're doled up to the nines. They look incredible. They're extraordinary actresses. They have no job. I mean, shit, give them a job, somebody. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Get on the phone Mom, now. give them yeah. a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I forgot who was listening. Uh, yeah, I spoke with uh, with Michaela on on this show, and she spoke of that kind of fear of you know the next job. It doesn't kind of matter what level you reach. There's always that this could be my last job, sort of fear. So f- f- coming back to you guys, at what point did you kind of um, make the decision, or did you were did you feel inclined to start creating your own work? Compelled might be a better word. Yeah, I think it was compelled. It was uh, making our work together. It was um, a push from Robin uh, when we had been living together maybe for a year or so. Um, And Robin had written several things that hadn't got up and we'd written a couple of things uh, that had gone to the ABC and didn't get up. And Robin said, "Let's just make something. Let's make. Uh, let's just make something ourselves." And um, she had an idea, which became Stories from the Gulf, which was a car, a, a, a series, a five a series of five minute episodes set in a hire car company in a Volkswagen Golf, which just happened to be our car at the time. Each episode um, was hired by a different person or persons, and it swapped genres and. It was a fantastic idea, um, and we—it was great. And I kind of it was right at the cusp of where t- technology was changing. So yes, I, again, I'm saying that I'm 500 years old, but you know, because we kind of had had gear. Uh, it was right when li- uh, non-linear editing was was just becoming available to outside of film school. We could have gear, and so we uh, shot three episodes of of this series um thinking actually because for, uh, cable television had just started in australia this was the late 90s it must have been yeah. very the turn of the century <laughs> <laughs> we got to say that in a Yay! sentence in relation to us it was the turn of the century and um <laughs> and we uh knew that they were making these shows that had five-minute interstitials in them. And so I thought, well, what if we try and make something for that market? This was before YouTube. This was a time... We used to dream of a place on the internet where there might be some kind of portal that you could put your work up. And we we made these three, and then we hadn't even got to the sort of going out to sell them point. And SBS somehow got wind of them and said 
rang us up and said, we believe that you've got these three things. Can we have 13 of them? And suddenly we had a, a series, albeit five minutes, but a production company. We, And it was, I think, just the meeting of both of our skill sets at that time. I'd been writing and making my own material since university. We'd, we'd you know, I, I'd been writing sketches and plays and cabarets and all sorts of things and I'd done improv you know for 10 years and I, I, was, I was very skilled in putting something together um, and I could and I'd written for radio I'd written um, a little short serial for radio here and in the UK for a couple of years I was, I was, I was very skilled at all of that and then I'd done sketch show for Eric Banner's show. Like, so it was just the meeting of all that skill. And then you'd made theatre. Yeah, I had an independent theatre company. I was used to producing um, a, a bunch of, you know, new works. And so I had that skill and I, you know, knew how to edit and I knew how to, you know, roughly shoot things. Oh, and, and you're a technical whiz, let's face it. I mean, he could, he made a boom pole out of our camp bed like he, he is that a technical whiz or is that just a poor is. person that's well <laughs> I was I was a poor person too and I couldn't do that so it was we we just had the a really good skill set to bring together to make this thing and then it was hilarious because we we cut to the I think it was then the AFIs yes you know you started by asking about talking about awards whether you thought about the end game we were sitting um I think behind Naomi Watts and Jeffrey Rush and all these people at the AFIs and our funny little five-minute thing had been nominated for Best Comedy Series and it was the, the one of the pilot dodgy ones that we'd made with the boom pole of the camp bed and we and just felt like... that was being like, shown oh, in a package as Best Comedy and it was kind of just a, a, hilarious, a yeah. <laughs> and a really motivating start to, uh, yeah, yeah, to making our own. yeah. It's kind of almost like a web series before, you know, yeah. that's exactly what it was. Before yeah. that was the kind of done thing. Yeah. And also it, it, that thing of content is king. And I, we just say it to everybody, content is king because it doesn't matter what form it is. It doesn't matter whether it's on the web or on the telly or on a movie. Like it doesn't matter if it's a good story, people want to see it. And it's, it, it, it just doesn't matter. And they were really good stories. They were nutty and out there. And sometimes I look at them now and go, oh, my God, what were we doing? But they were good stories. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I ran out of puff at the end of that sentence. But... Right. it's fair enough. <laughs> I'll take over. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you guys met uh, doing uh, like a mockumentary um, called Small Tales and True. Do you remember the kind of the, the first moment that you guys did meet? I think we met if, met before that series. We knew each other from being around. Robin had moved down from Sydney. Uh, I'm from Melbourne, and we knew through acting circles and With, comics at a barbecue and, uh, or something. Yeah, and say yeah. hi, or you know, like not not very well. Um, but then it, when it came to that series, Robin wrote it with. Uh, Bob Franklin, Ros Hammond and Matt Cameron and Matt Cameron I went to university with and there was a link there and when they were casting my name came up um, for a couple of parts in this mockumentary series. It was a fantastic series. Again, mockumentary way before it was in fashion um, and 
I we look met playing husband and wife. Uh, they were the, that was kind of how it started. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's pretty it? funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, 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 we thought each other were great. We were meant to be playing a marriage that was in disharmony, which was quite funny because he kept feeling me up. I was going, "What are you feeling me up for? We're meant to be not getting along." But I'm doing interviews to camera, and I made the bizarre choice as an actor. We, yeah, we were talking about the conflict in the marriage, but I kept putting my hand on her thigh, and you could just see the director and even Robin. <laughs> no, it was good. It was, but it was actually great because it made it, made it work because I was, I joined an amateur, my character had joined an amateur theatre group and I was getting really involved in that and leaving. Pulling away from the marriage. Pulling away from the marriage. So it made sense I that you were doing it. But it's the thing I always literally. really love about your performance too is you always bring this kind of vulnerability, this kind of, you know, this extra little dollop of neediness to it. <laughs> it's got to go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> And that's cool. So how did you kind of uh, bridge the gap, I suppose, from co-workers or performers to being a couple? We just started going out during that and we, I think there was something really great about working together first and being performers. We'd already kind of had that established I think it would be really hard if you if you were a couple first and then said let's make something together. I think that it might be a different dynamic, but mm. because we were already kind of established in what we were doing and we'd actually I mean we hadn't done much together, but we had a lot of respect for where each other was coming from. Yep. And maybe too there's fresh thought, but we occupied different spaces too from the start. You know, you had although we were both performers you were writing I was kind of making things and producing there was enough of our own for Mm. us to be together if that that make any sense yeah 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 sometimes if you're competing on exact same ground it's harder to this is true if we were both writing if we both had the same kind of writing I mean I was writing a lot more at that point um that's true and I think the other thing I think people are often like what the hell are you doing being married and working together it's it's very hard for people to understand once people work with us I think they see that we are very much a couple we like each other enormously as as people but we bring we really do bring out the best in each other like I think Wayne is absolutely brilliant like I I really think he's fantastic and when he makes me be better when I'm around him you know we've been in we've had writers rooms going uh, upstairs and downstairs in our offices at the moment and wherever you know whenever he's talking and and it's not that we don't argue or we we think everything we say is the other person says is is genius <laughs> but most of the time I'm I'm on the same page and I'm invigorated by what he's talking about and his ideas are good and watching him direct makes me feel you know alive and and I think that's the thing that people can't sometimes grasp that it's not like I think they imagine what it would be like if the person they sat down and had dinner with and went to their golf day with they suddenly had to work with in their job it's not like that it's the opposite of that it where, is because it's energizing it mm. does it's actually it is inspiring to kind of be in stride with someone who's you know full of ideas I'm talking about you now um, oh. <laughs> 
uh, it creates an energy for the work and for the relationship. Mm. What do you think, you know, it's, it's a consistent topic that I speak with people about on this is about creating and sustaining kind of intimate relationship in this industry because it seems to be kind of extreme experiences to see the people uh, who just can't at all because of the kind of uh, the hours that it kind of that this job requires of you and the kind of lifestyle choice or there are people who have partners from outside the industry what do you kind what do you guys think are kind of the pillars of uh, creating a successful relationship within um, this kind of working environment I think parameters are important I think it's different for us, obviously, because we see each other all the time. Mm. But within that, we're very clear about the parameters we have. We've been guided very much or governed probably by our children in that they don't care what job we do. They don't care if we work together. They care that they have a day at school and then when they come home they need to talk about that day and who was doing what and how they struggled in that thing or what this great thing that happened was. So it's... uh, They don't want to hear us talk about blah, blah, blah and what about that and what about, you know... So it's, it's... We finish the day and we have dinner and then we're like normal human beings and we listen and we talk and I think talking is very underrated I think talking about everything is really really crucial and finding that time to talk about so we've and not just intimate relationships with each other I think but with our family our wider family we're very very tight with all our family members we invest in that and that's really important to us particularly as we get older and yeah. our friendships like it's but it's it, it's investment you have to put aside the time and sometimes you feel like I just want to blob tonight I don't want to do anything but then you you go out to dinner or you go and have people over and it feels feels good I think adding to that to be honest about going back to something we we're talking about earlier about the need of, of a performer being honest with each other about what you're trying to do and what your needs are, what you what you want, and if you can talk honestly about who you are and what you're trying to do, um, I think sometimes it's hard for relationships where performing seems or performing or directing or this seems to take up so much oxygen, and a lot of people struggle with that. But I think if, if you can be honest about that, why you want to express yourself, what you're trying to do, and the other, and give some oxygen to other people too yeah. which is something you got to painfully learn um, I think that helps mm. so when you you kind of you, you said about creating the librarians um, this is kind of a, there's no segue in there but <laughs> when when you when you do um, start creating work on that sort of level how does that kind of how does the process kind of evolve how does your relationship kind of evolve into that um into that world well that was our first very very big thing that we'd done that was after doing stories from the gulf the abc saw us as a production company and just sort of assumed that we would be be producing that ourselves which was like going from 
you know, eating a California roll to a, you know, degustation meal. I don't know why I just went <laughs> California with California roll. Yeah, yeah, anyway, but it was just, it, it was massive. Huge leap. And... I mean, to, as, as an example, stories from the Gulf, we did the catering. We got up at 4.30 and made salad rolls for the crew of eight. And then you move to the librarians and next production, which is the usual, you know... Uh, crew of 60 yeah and, and, and working at that level with us producing and really learning in the moment what it was and it was exhilarating it was it was um, mind expanding and uh, I think again though it came back to the content that we'd written the show first and while we were terrified of all of that the size the mechanics of it, of it yeah I remember the first time we sat down for a production meeting and there were, you know, 25 people sitting around a table and I thought, I might have to run from the room. I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> and then as people started asking questions, I realised, oh, I know the answer to all these questions because I know what the content is. And so it was actually just one foot in front of the other, trust the creative process because you created the creative process and actually... We are the bosses of the creative process. I think that's something I've learned along the way that people tell me how it works. And I've just, and I've, well, under Wayne, Wayne's very good at that going, no, 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 you're the boss. You say how it works. You, you're the boss. You say, you make up how, how it works. But the other thing I think just in terms of us in that is that we're never, we're both quite the same, very similar, in that we never really attack when we're under pressure. We cling to each other under pressure, which is a really great character trait for this business because we, we it's like yeah. we, we link arms and, and, and move forward, which is... Anyone who's seen us at the split can, can bear mm. witness to that. That there's, you know, after every cut, there's a little huddle of, you mm. know, how are we going, what are we doing? Mm. So that's the kind of way we roll. Does that answer the creative? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I, I suppose it kind of uh, illuminates um, that kind of gap between, um, you know, when when you are creating something truly independently, and then when you are kind of uh, given that sort of responsibility and that trust from network ABC in that instance to kind of, uh, you know, take an idea and a concept and run with it. I was going to say it's backing backing your instincts and learning that your instincts are are good as a and it's you've had instincts in high school at university you've operated on those and you do it with a freedom because it's the boundaries of universities I can do anything I can play and then you suddenly get to a professional level and you doubt your instincts and I remember at the start of the librarians I we got the set we built this set which was an old Mercedes Benz car dealership in South Melbourne and it's kind of just half being done by the art department and I thought I've got to direct how do you direct I've you know I've had this crisis in confidence kind of but I think through it might have been through Screen Australia or we had a little bit of money from them maybe it was their suggestion but I I we were friends with Kev Carlin the director fantastic uh Australian director who you'd worked with a a lot we both worked with He, he Eric Banner's show and, and Full Frontal and a whole host of things. And I said, can I, can I pick your brains for a couple of hours? And he came down to the, to the set and, and he said, just talk to me. What, what are you thinking? And I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm worried. I, I, will I be able to carry all of this? He said, just, just get out the first page. What's the first page? 
tell me what you're going to do. And he walked into the office. The first scene in the librarians is an office scene where Francis holds court and we kind of introduced to all these dysfunctional librarians. And I just described, he said, just tell me what you're seeing. Just, just talk through it. And I said, oh, well, I'd be here and I'd do that and this joke and you know, I think I'd hold off from seeing him until that. And he said, that's it. That's, that's what you need to do. Just tell people to press the red button and, and record that, <laughs> you know. Uh, and it was fantastic. It was, it was very kind of him because he was, you know, he was going, you've got no idea about lighting or, or any of that. Don't worry about that. Just, but trust your instincts of how to tell the story and how to tell the jokes and then you'll learn on the job with that. Really Sometimes great. that's all you need, though, isn't it? Just that tit, that endorsement yeah. rather than Carrying the weight else. of being yeah, supposed yeah. to know a million things. No, just yeah. trust what you do know and, and that'll turn into something. Let mm. it evolve. Mm. And I think, you know, Robin, it comes back to what you say. Story is the kind of the, the foundational element of it all. And if you're telling a good story, you know, people will forgive the kind of other elements maybe not being completely up to scratch from the get-go. That's right. Yeah. And they'll enjoy seeing the evolution when they look back retrospectively as well and go, oh, look at how the you know that's evolved or that's evolved, I think. I don't know. I wanted to hook into something that you did say before as well about content being king. And this is kind of, you know, the librarians is the kind of start of that really kind of, that, well, it's that big kind of jump into the career um, as you know, really multifaceted creators. Would, would, you, would you elaborate on what you mean maybe in the context of today's day and age about what content is king really does mean? It means that I think we've had this very full career in the last 10 or 12 years where I sound like I'm fluffing our own pillows, but we are sought after and the part that we're sought after most is as content creators and that's here in America everywhere because yes people want us to act and direct and even produce things but the thing that they and and write well write just goes hand in hand with content the thing that they want is the content just hands down because you can get somebody to direct it you can get somebody to act in it but the thing you can't get is that that the kernel of the idea and now that things are so global things translate as we know the days of watching something here and then finding out about a show that happened in America or the UK or Denmark five years ago are gone they happen instantaneously and so it means that we have a global reach and it's it's a it, it I, I just can't express how much an, a, an entry ticket it is and I, I really do encourage people out there to concentrate on the the writing of things and the rewriting of things I say it ad nauseum and I've we've got I've, I've got some young writers working with us at the moment and I I just I'm my biggest note is yet let's start that again and let's go back over that bit and let's rewrite that we rewrite scene breakdowns five times because the ideas it's over you can have the prettiest pictures in the world and you can have the smiliest actor and the prettiest face doesn't mean anything if you drift out of that people come back to the idea I always 
I was thinking when you just before when you said about forgiving the, the the sins of the you know the the stuff around that's not so good. I was thinking about watching the behind the scenes of Little Miss Sunshine, mm. and them talking about oh, we had no time and we had no you know if you watch that you'll see it's so blown out. And we went back and watched the watched the film again, and you see all these shots that like. Uh, there is incredible blowout like it's all these things that you go oh my god I didn't even see it because the writing the story is so incredible and so it's it's a really big note for us and you know now that the the market is just so saturated with television with product with everything web, web whatever it has to be good. It has to be a compelling story. Like that's the only thing that that matters. So, yeah, I don't. I think that's only going to get more of an issue that content is king. I just think that it's going to grow more and more until we get into a VR world that I don't understand, and then I'll have retired by then. So. But uh, alongside that, maybe it brushes up against a point of view too. That with that content, that yeah, it, it's it's a it's having a point of view. It's 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 expressing yourself from somewhere that becomes strong so that that content, that's what sticks out. It's not that. It's just something else. We have come into contact with people via their Instagram account because the three sentences they type is strong content. It has a strong point of view. You get character from it. You get you know their skill level from it. Like It can come from anywhere, but that's just one example of how just a tiny piece of content still having a strong point of view pops out and why I think it will always will, no matter what the form is, that will always be the thing that leaps out and mm. goes, oh, I'm leaning into that. I want more of that. How significant do you think it is to be, uh, for a young creator, or actually any creator, to be kind of across those social media channels and to be creating content that is specifically catered for those sort of mediums as well as uh, you know, longer format medium? I think it's purely up to the individual. I think if that's your bag, like we do have a writer working with us now who I found originally on Instagram and I just thought she was an incredible young voice and uh, and she, she that that's transpired into something, you know, much more real there. But that's that's what she likes. She loves being in that space and writing kooky things and that's but I would never say to someone else you have to be on Instagram if that's not your bag. I think anybody forcing themselves into a medium just to be present, to have a presence is probably a dopey idea. Um so I would think that it's like anything, you know, don't um, you know, you're not supposed to be good at everything, but try to play to your strengths. And if that's where you, if you think you're a good joke writer, then get on Twitter and, you know, let some jokes go off. And uh, if you see pictures and, you know, you, you, you see funny in pictures a lot, then start taking those pictures and write a little caption underneath and, if anything, it doesn't matter if the world doesn't give you 10,000 likes. It's practice. Every single thing is practicing your craft in, in some way. But if, that's, if social media is taking away from the real craft and you writing a script or you, you practicing writing a story, 
then get off social media, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> it's a waste of time. Mm. How do you guys uh, kind of judge the success of one of your projects or the creation of some of your content? You know, we kind of started the talk speaking about um, the Logie win and kind of tracked back from there. So I'm, I'm curious to know, like, is, is there kind of a definitive idea or is it kind of an evolving concept? It's evolving and it's cha- and it changes over time. I think that I think we've moved into a sense of um, wanting to connect with an audience more and more as we've gone on and, and respect it and value connection because it's hard to get and it's very rewarding when people are engaged with what you're saying. And so I think early on we were just it was pure instinct and then, hoping people came along for the ride or or slightly naive, yeah, naively yes. thinking that an audience will come to us because we're making comedy for the nation. So <laughs> therefore they should respond and they don't. It's it, um, So we've shifted into a place where we really respect the audience and I think with a show like Upper Middle Bogan, we, we truly embraced that and and just and knew that we were connecting with an audience from many types of of a broader reach in the culture and that was fantastic and then alongside that especially when we made season three last time we had it between us we had an incredible sense whilst we were making it um, how enjoyable it was and it's shifting into being happy in the moment that you're actually making something because often a career is so desperately thinking ahead what's next how do I get to how do I get to and truly being enjoying the process of making something and knowing this is a special moment. This is we're making something that we love. We've created a world that's working. It's connecting with an audience. It, this is enough. This is actually enough. It's so funny how things change. To that longevity gives you a very different perspective. I think you know when you when we first started it was it was important to be nominated for awards and 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 have people write things about you or uh which is stu- I've, i don't read reviews anyway but the concept that it's out there all those public measures of affirmation meant something and as time goes on it's funny that they mean so little in comparison to the to the actual like you said the making of it but just in the way people respond to it like we even on oh, sorry about that we were on the week on the weekend we were out with our family and you know this young woman quite young woman came up to me and she said, I, I don't know if this is appropriate waitress I don't know if this is appropriate but I just wanted to say that my family has watched your shows forever and since the librarians and we just love it so much and and it means something. People talk about our shows, our work all the time, and you can see that they connect with it. And ultimately, that's why you're making it. You're not making it for the 10 people in the industry who give you an award or write a review or even the industry itself. You're actually making it, particularly us at the ABC on taxpayers' money. We're making it for the people. We should be having a response, and that matters increasingly, and especially with a show like Little Lunch, um, where we have a chance to have an impact on children 
Um, we're super proud of that show and the impact it's had because it's gender equal. It's, it's the only show on television that children watch in Australia that I don't know about anywhere else that both genders watch. Um, because it's in equal measure. In equal measure, because it's got both, you know, gender, um, both male and female protagonists, and it's about its respect and integrity and kindness, and it's funny, and it's got all these values that we hold very dear to us. And you can write as much as you like in your grown-up satires, but there's an extent, not so much with Upper Middle Bogan, but you know, you, you're sort of preaching to the choir in. in to, to an extent but if you can have an impact on little people and the way they think and the way they view the world and lots and lots of kids have seen that then that that feels that feels good yeah that's awesome thank you thank you so much for your time today guys i really uh, really appreciate all of your insights and um i uh, i end all of my podcasts with the same question the question is what makes you silly what makes me silly? We were, I don't know if this is an ant, I don't know if this is what you mean, but we have been storylining a new series. I was thinking too. And we got to the last episode yesterday. Well, we've been working on the last episode and we got to the last act of the last episode yesterday and I was ridiculous. I could not stop doing the dumbest jokes, <laughs> dancing, doing impressions. The writer's room constantly wears us to a point of silliness Stupidity. every single time. And it's out of just so many concentrated hours that you drop everything eventually and just become a, a, a little bit loony. And it's glorious. Yeah, yeah. Our girls make us silly and loud music, driving in a car. That yeah. also makes us silly. Yeah, the three biggies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. Thank you.